0: As the children are making their way to their classes, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them again to the book of Revelation. We're continuing our study. We're in Revelation chapter 17 again this morning. Last week, we began the last section of the book of Revelation that takes place just prior to the return of Christ in chapter 19. This section that comprises all of 17 and 18 and the first few verses of chapter 19, is all about the fall of Babylon. As we learned last week, though Babylon is symbolized as the great prostitute in John's vision, she represents to us the world itself, Augustine's city of man. And we have seen shadows of this Babylon all throughout human history. For John and his first century readers, it was Rome. For us today, it could be New York or L.A. or even Atlanta. Any city that cries out to man, come to me and I'll give you everything that you desire. Only don't bring your Jesus with you. Instead, worship me, love me, serve me, and I will make all your dreams come true. And all these shadows of Babylon the great throughout history point to a final world system that will ratchet that up a million times. And as we came to the end of John's vision there of the great prostitute, John sees at the end of that that she is drunk with the wine of the saints, excuse me, drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, which told us that her actions and her influence causes Christians to die. And John tells us that when he saw her, he marveled greatly. He marveled greatly, which includes a connotation of wonder and amazement and perhaps no small part of curiosity and maybe even confusion as if, how could this be so? Because the angel had told John at the beginning of the vision, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute. That's what he's told he's going to see. But in the vision, John sees something else. What John sees is... A beautiful and desirable woman who is arrayed in the finest of linens, adorned with the most costly of jewels, and she is intoxicated with the blood of the saints. And so John marvels at this with amazement and confusion. And so we pick up the story now at that point, and what we have in the remainder of chapter 17 is the angel's interpretation of that very vision. But what's interesting to note is is that his interpretation, as you'll see when we read it, focuses not so much on the great prostitute, but on the scarlet beast upon whom she sits. We learned in verse 3 that she's sitting on a scarlet beast who's full of blasphemous names, who had seven heads and ten horns. And we were reminded that this was the first beast that came out of the sea in chapter 13 that we came to know as Antichrist. And so the angel's interpretation in our passage this morning focuses primarily on the Antichrist, the beast, and his seven heads and ten horns. So let's read in God's Word, Revelation 17, and we'll pick up the story in the second half of verse six john says when i saw her when i saw the vision of this prostitute i marveled greatly but the angel said to me why do you marvel i will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit And go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is a great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, with uh, humble hands and needy minds. We need your spirit to help us understand this strange text. Father, we confess that all scriptures is inspired by you and profitable for your people. And so we ask, Lord, that you would cause this to profit us. We pray, Lord, that you would use this text, your holy word this morning, to equip your church to encourage the saints to challenge us where we need to be challenged. And Lord, that it would be used by your power and your grace to call sinners to repentance and faith, to respond to the gospel truths and come to faith in Jesus Christ so they might avoid what is in store for all those whose names are not written in the book of life. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name, amen. All right so a simple outline of this morning's passage would look like this. First of all we have the introduction to the interpretation in verse 7 and then the bulk of the interpretation of the vision itself occurs in verses 8 through 14. First of the beast then of his seven heads and then his ten horns and that's followed by a discussion about the destruction of the woman in the closing verses. So let's Let's look first at the introduction to the interpretation in verse 7. The angel sees John marveling at the vision of the great prostitute that he gave him in the first six verses. And he says, why do you marvel? Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns. Now, we read that, that the angel is going to tell the mystery of the beast and the seven heads and the ten horns and we think awesome this is going to get all cleared up for us right because the angel's going to lift the veil of the mystery and tell us all about the beast and the seven heads and the ten horns but unfortunately I'm afraid that there will still be much that is that remains a mystery when we're done this morning um, at the end of this passage um, as i read this week commentary after commentary after commentary search the scriptures search the original languages listen to sermon after sermon i heard over and over and over again this is the most difficult passage to understand in the book of revelation so there we are we're in the most difficult book to understand in all of the bible and we've got the most difficult passage in it the mystery in all likelihood will remain a mystery, unless perhaps the mystery that is revealed to us here is not so much about who this beast is or what he represents, the mystery perhaps is not so much for us to be able to identify who or what the seven heads refer to and the ten horns refer to, but rather that the mystery is about how you and I and John and his first century readers can see evil advancing in the world all around us and yet not be discouraged by it. I think perhaps that's what John is wrestling with here. His vision in those first six verses is that of a woman and a beast who are winning and they are powerful and they are killing Christians left and right and John is teetering on the edge of discouragement and despair and so if that's what the mystery is that is revealed here then yes I think the angel's interpretation is going to help us tremendously with that this morning So let's dive into the angel's interpretation. First, he interprets the beast himself in verse 8. Now, before we read what the angel says, let us understand as we unpack this interpretation of the beast that we don't do so in a vacuum. We've already learned much about this beast in this book. Back in chapter 11, he arose out of the abyss. That um, place, that, 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 that bottomless sea, which is that metaphorical place of the demons he arose out of the abyss and he made war on the two prophets which symbolized the church and he killed the two prophets and then in chapter 13 he was the first beast who arose out of the sea and the dragon was watching this the dragon represents satan and the dragon gives him his power and so he gets the beast gets his power from satan And the beast has a mortal wound on one of his seven heads, and that mortal wound is miraculously healed. And the earth dwellers marvel at the beast and worship the beast, and the beast was allowed to make war on the saints for 42 months. Now, in light of that, in light of what we've already learned about the beast, about Antichrist, let's now hear from the angel what he says is in in his interpretation of the the vision in verse 8. He says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now, note that the angel's interpretation of the beast here doesn't tell us anything about who he is. He doesn't talk about what he represents. And so apparently that's not as important as the main thing. If that were primarily important, I think he would have been a little bit more clear as to who the beast is and what he represents. Instead, he focuses his explanation on what happens to the beast and on what happens to the earth dwellers. He says that the beast was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. He repeats that same phraseology at the end of the verse when he says that the beast was and is not and is to come. The the is to come at the end there, I think, refers to him rising from the bottomless pit, which the angel says, it hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen. It's going to happen. It's in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. And that rising from the bottomless pit is followed by the destruction of the beast. Now, a couple of things that I want us to note about what the angel says about the beast here in verse 8. The first is that the beast is mimicking God, and that's what he does. He mimics God, and he mimics Jesus, because he wants the worship that only they deserve. So he's mimicking God here. Several times throughout Revelation, God is referred to... In much the same way as the Antichrist is referred to, the beast is referred to here in verse 8. Listen to some of those times. Chapter 1, verse 4, John greets his audience and he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Four verses later in verse 8, God says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In chapter 4, we have the four living creatures. They are worshiping God on the throne in heaven, and they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then if you recall, in chapter 11, we get this snapshot of the very end. We're telescoped to the final state after everything has happened. And the 24 elders bow down and worship God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And there was no who is to come. Remember that? Because at that point, we're telescoped to the very end, and there is no time to come. And so so there is no who is to come. And so this is a way of referring to the eternal nature of God. Who was and is and is to come he had no beginning he is today and he will have no end and here in verse 8 is it is used of the antichrist because the antichrist wants to mimic god in all ways and he wants to mimic his son he wants what only god deserves which is the worship of man but the angel uses it here of the beast. This is the angel speaking. And I think he's using it of the beast here in almost a mocking way. He's ridiculing the beast here. Look at those three parts again. First, he was. The Antichrist was around in the world in John's day. Remember we read last week from John's first epistle, 1 John 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So he was, he has been, he has existed. And as we discussed when we covered chapter 13, the Antichrist has existed in spirit in many world leaders throughout human history. And so he was. But instead of next saying, and he is, he says He is not he is not the is not refers to the fact that he was defeated at calvary at calvary the antichrist was given that mortal wound that we learned about in chapter 13 on one of his heads he received that mortal wound at calvary he was greatly diminished in his power and influence and so in that sense he is not But the angel also says that he is to come. This beast is returning. His mortal wound will be miraculously healed, as we learned about in chapter 13. And he will rise from that bottomless pit, and he will return. He will come back. And his return will be yet another attempt to mimic Christ. And his resurrection from the dead. But the angel makes sure to let John know that when he rises from the pit, it's only going to be for a short time, and then he will go to destruction. So the angel is using language here that refers to the eternal nature of God. He who was and is and is to come. But he uses that language to ridicule the feeble attempts of this beast to mimic God and Christ. But regardless of how feeble those attempts are, for some it will work. For some it will work. And that's the second thing that we learn from the angel's words about the beast in verse 8 that unbelievers will worship the beast. What does the angel say in the second half of verse 8? The dwellers on earth, which again is Revelation's code word for unbeliever, and then they're described for us next, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This is like the earth dwellers back in chapter 13 who worshiped the beast and said, who is like him and who can fight against him? They were in awe of Him. They were amazed by Him. And they worshipped Him. But these earth dwellers are deceived by the Antichrist's display of power. Thinking Him to be invincible, thinking Him to be their source of rescue, they fall in with Him. And one of the overarching messages of the book of Revelation is that not only will the beast be thrown into the lake of fire, but at the final judgment, all those who are with him will as well. All those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will likewise be thrown into that lake of fire. Listen to these sobering words from the final two verses of chapter 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There are great world powers at work today. There have been all throughout human history. And men and women, men and women have found themselves Following them blindly. Thinking them to be the source of their rescue. They are enamored by their display of power. And so they follow them. Whether they are powerful people or powerful nations or powerful ideas. They follow them and serve them. And I believe that Revelation is teaching us that there is coming one. Who will make all these others pale in comparison he will set himself up as god and those who don't know christ are going to fall for it and they will do so to their own eternal peril listen friend whether it is the spirit of any christ that is at work in the world today or whether it it is this eschatological picture of a beast in the final day don't marvel at the beast he's not marvelous he is a false christ he is not god he is not a great rescuer and all those who follow him will pay for it forever now we turn our attention next to the angels interpretation of the seven heads and the ten horns this is where it's going to get very very confusing. I know it's been crystal clear up to this point, but now it's going to get interesting. And I love how the angel starts this off. He says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Perhaps that's why I had such a hard time with this this week. I don't know. It calls for a mind with wisdom. He says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, for John and his first century readers, that would have immediately brought to mind the city of Rome. The city of Rome was literally a city that was built on or built around seven mountains or seven hills. It was known as the city of seven hills. And so for them, they would have immediately thought of Rome. But this doesn't mean for us in the 21st century that Rome was the Antichrist or that the Roman emperor that was at rule when he wrote this was the Antichrist. But it simply means that the very best way for the angel to explain to John and his readers so that they would understand something about a figure with massive power and great global influence who sets himself up as God is for them to look at Rome and to look at the Roman emperor of the day. Because the emperor and Rome itself was a shadow of this eschatological beast who will be like the city on seven hills. Now next, no sooner does the angel say that the seven heads are seven mountains, now he makes it even more confusing. He says that they are also seven kings. So first, the seven heads are likened to seven mountains. And, and, and I think simply to make John's first century audience think of Antichrist in, the term, in terms of the kind of power and influence and even compulsory worship that the Roman emperor wielded. But now the seven heads are likened to seven kings. And the angel says a little bit more about the kings. He says that five of them have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. Now, just trust me, That there is a veritable plethora of suggestions and ideas as to who these seven kings are. And there is absolutely no consensus whatsoever as to their identity. So the mystery remains about who they are. You can go back to the historical emperors of Rome and try to count out seven of them that fit this description. Uh, five who have fallen, five have died, one is, and one is to come, and when he comes, he's only around for a little while. And just trust me, whether you start with Caesar Augustus or Nero or Vespasian or any of them, with all of them, you're going to have a problem making this neatly fit into what the angel describes here. Just none of those combinations of those early kings works. You can go back to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, on which this passage heavily relies. And you can can look at the four beasts of Daniel 7. They've got seven heads between them because the third beast had four. Four plus three is seven. And so that, that would mean that the seven heads coordinate with the seven beasts of Daniel 7, which would mean that they're not kings, but they're kingdoms. They're not rulers, but they are empires. But that presents a major problem as well. Under that scenario, the third beast of those four in Daniel 7 has four heads, right? The third beast has four heads. So the first two heads correspond with the first two beasts. And then there are four more heads with that third beast, which means that both The five that have fallen, as well as the one who is, both refer to the third beast, and the third beast in Daniel 7 refers to Greece. And Greece can't be both he who has fallen and who is, because Greece at that time had fallen. The Greek empire was no more. And so you can't have both of those things. And so the empire that was or is at that time was the Roman empire, but the Roman empire In that scenario, would be the seventh head or the seventh king, and that means that he is to come. But Rome already is. Does that make does that make sense? Is that clear? It's not clear. It just it doesn't fit. Personally, I think this is yet another one of those instances where perhaps we're trying to get apocalyptic literature to explain something that it was never intended to explain we're trying to force a square peg into a round hole here what have we said over and over and over again when we encounter these numbers in the book of revelation we can't always interpret them literally whether it's the seven lampstands or the seven spirits of God or the seven seals or the seven trumpets or the seven angels with seven bowls. We were even told, if you recall, back in chapter 5 that Jesus, the Lamb, has seven horns and seven eyes. Are we to interpret that literally as if Jesus had seven horns and seven eyes? Of course not. That was figurative. And I would suggest to you that these seven kings are figurative as well the number seven in the bible is the number for completeness and wholeness and so the seven kings that he talks about here represent the whole and complete identity of the antichrist all throughout history all throughout time so if that's the case then that means that we're not We're not meant to try to look for seven literal kings or seven literal kingdoms. Instead, we're to look at how these seven kings describe for us the whole and complete identity of the Antichrist in times past, times present, and in the eschatological future. And what does the angel say about them that helps us understand that? First, he says, Five have fallen. So I I think this refers to five kingdoms of the world, and and that number itself, five is figurative. We're trying to get to seven, which is the number of completeness and wholeness, but it represents kingdoms of the world throughout history who have wielded global power and influence and have subsequently been defeated. They have fallen for John and his first century readers. These would include the Assyrians, uh, the Egyptians to a certain degree, the Persians, the, the Greeks. In John's day, all of these world empires had either fallen or had been greatly defeated and diminished in power. What kingdoms and empires might we include in that list today? Well, perhaps we would include the great Tang dynasty of China in the 7th century that wielded great influence all throughout Asia. Maybe we would include the medieval German empire of the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, or the Holy Roman Empire, and the Ottoman and Byzantine empires, all of whom fought one another for dominance during the Middle Ages. All of these are fallen. And by the way, it's only a matter of time. Before we add to that list, modern-day empires like Great Britain, Russia, China, and even the good old USA. Now, please don't mishear me. Please don't misquote me. Please don't send me a text about this. I'm not saying that America is Antichrist, but I am saying that all world leaders and all world empires who give themselves up to the spirit of Antichrist and in whom the spirit of Antichrist is made manifest will fall one day. And so these all correspond to the five of the seven kings that have fallen. Then he says, one is, one king is. And that again reminds us that the spirit of Antichrist may have fallen, but he still is. And the spirit of Antichrist is still in the world today still at work in the world today that's what john said in first john 4 3 that we read earlier he says this is the spirit of antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already he also said uh, in first john 2 verse 18 children it is the last hour and as you have heard that many that antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come therefore we know that it, it is the last hour now, if that's true, that was true of the first century, how much more is it true of the 21st century? And then lastly, the angel says, the other king has not yet come. And so five kings have fallen, one is alive and at work in the world today. But there's also a very real sense in which the Antichrist has not yet come, at least not in this eschatological sense in the form of this beast. Verse 10 continues, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. Why? Because he will be finally defeated and he will go to destruction, which is what the next verse, verse 11, tells us explicitly. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So the beast, the eschatological future beast, is part of the seven, but he's also an eighth. And while he will resemble the spirit of Antichrist that is at work in the world today and has been at work throughout human history, he will be altogether different as well. He will be evil on a whole different level. But the key here for us is he will go to destruction. And along with him, all those whose names are not written in the book of life. So now let's turn our attention to the interpretation of the 10 horns this is going to be equally as confusing as the seven heads the angel says in verse 12 the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings so here we go again we've already got seven kings that are represented by the seven heads and i'm suggesting to you that those seven heads those seven kings are the personification of the whole and complete identity of antichrist past present and future but now we've also got These 10 additional kings symbolized by the 10 horns. So what do we learn about the 10 kings? Well, the angel says in verse 12, they have not yet received royal power. So they're not here yet. They're not around. They're still in the future to come. But they are to receive power as kings for one hour together with the beast. So when they come, they will receive power with the beast, but only for one hour. And I believe that to be figurative. That that limited time is kind of like the the forty-two months, the three and a half years that we learned about in chapter thirteen. That the beast will be given authority to uh, to conquer the saints and to do make war against the church. It is a time that is cut short. It's also like the the sixth king in verse ten, in the a couple of verses earlier, about whom is said when he does come, he must remain only a little while because he goes to destruction then verse 13 tells us that these 10 kings are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast and so there's unity among these kings now i I take these 10 kings to be representative of world empires or world leaders or whatever military might that is in power at the time in which this beast is displayed and manifested in the eschaton. And they bind together, and they form an alliance with the beast. We read about what I believe is the very same thing back in chapter 16, when the kings of the earth make war along with the beast, when that sixth bowl judgment was poured out. Listen to chapter 16, verses 12 through 14. I think he's describing the exact same thing. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up. Why? To prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. And those are explained for us. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, and where do they go? They go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So what's in view there in chapter 16 is also in view now in chapter 17, which is a picture of the final battle of Armageddon. Now, that final battle won't take place until after Jesus returns, and we read about it in chapter 19. But the angel is telling John about it now, and he says that the kings of the earth will be of one mind, and they will give all of their power and all of their authority over to the beast for one reason and one reason only, and that is to make war on the Lamb. And guess what happens in that war? The angel tells us in verse 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer, him, conquer them. For he is king of kings and lord of lords and those with him are called, called and chosen and faithful. To me, this is the climax of the chapter. It's the, it's the main point of this whole passage. Jesus wins. They make war on the lamb and the lamb conquers them. They will make war on the Lamb, and ultimately, that's what you're choosing if you choose not to follow Christ. If you choose not to follow Christ, then you're choosing to follow the beast. And if you choose to follow the beast, and you're around when this stuff happens, when the Lamb returns, then you will be engaged in that great battle against the Lamb, And you will lose, because the Lamb will conquer them, and He will conquer them because of who He is. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the mighty God of Israel. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and no one can stand against Him. The Lamb will conquer them. But there will be others that are there with him, sharing in that victory. Men, women, children, who are they? The angel tells us, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Those who stand with Jesus Christ in the final victory that we'll read about in chapter 19 are those who are called and chosen and faithful those who are called by God to be His followers. They are called to faith. They are called to life from death. And they are also chosen by God to be among His followers. These are those whose names are written in the book of life. And remember, when are those names written in the book of the life? From before the foundation of the world. And so, from before the foundation of the world, we were chosen. We who were chosen were were called to life, called to faith. But we are also called the faithful. We must respond to that call with faith. Faith in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, as our Rescuer, as our Lord and Savior. Faith in His perfect life that achieved a righteousness that we never could achieve for ourselves faith in his substitutionary death that it might atone for our sins faith in his resurrection that it displays that we who trust in him are justified we are called and we are chosen but we are also faithful And we who are called and chosen and faithful will stand with the lamb when he conquers the beast and his army. The angel closes his interpretation of this vision by discussing the destruction of the woman in the closing verses. And I think it's interesting that this interpretation of the vision of the woman and the beast is primarily about the beast. And why? Because the prostitute, as all prostitutes are, is just used up for a time and then discarded. And that's what happens to her here. Remember what we said last time, that the great prostitute represents the world system around us, culture around us that is so powerful and has such global influence. Her her global influence is symbolized by what the angel says of her in verse 15. The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated on are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Uh, We were told in the first six verses that she's seated on many waters. And now the angel says the waters represents multitudes and nations and languages and peoples. In other words, she has global influence. Her cultural influence is massive. She is powerful. She has great influence. This is also seen in what the angel says of her in, in the last verse of the chapter. The woman that you saw is a great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So all the earth is at her feet, drinking of her abominations, and she has incredible power and influence. But then what happens? The evil and demonic entities at play turn on her. Look at verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. And so we see here the very self-destructive nature of evil. If evil is deceptive and mean and only looks out for itself and is only loyal to itself, then it is only a matter of time before it turns on itself and destroys itself. Both the prostitute and the beast are certainly evil the prostitute at at one point even seems to be doing the beast's work she is drunk with the blood of the saints but she's also sitting on the beast showing that not only is she deriving her power and authority from the beast but perhaps also thinking that she might be able to rule the beast as its master and so the beast and the 10 horns in an act of self-preservation kill her and kill the woman the prostitute stands for the incredible cultural influence in the world while the beast and the tin horns stands for the military might at play in the world in that time you would think that both of them could work together towards the same end why don't they work together Ultimately, the angel tells us it's because of God sovereignly working behind the scenes to orient these evil powers to accomplish His sovereign and good purposes. Look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts, the hearts of the beast and the ten horns and all that they represent, god has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of god are fulfilled and so again we're reminded here in revelation that when we see evil displayed in the world we need to remind ourselves it is on a leash Not only will God prevent evil from going any further than he decrees it should go, but it will not go any further than he decrees it must go in order to accomplish his good purposes. As he says here, until the words of God or until the plans of God are fulfilled. And where do we see that truth manifested any more perfectly than in the cross of Calvary? Against Jesus, evil forces were constantly at work trying to keep him from his atoning work on the cross. When King Herod, in a jealous rage made a decree that all those in the area around Jerusalem, all males, two years old and younger, were to be killed, evil forces were at work trying to kill baby Jesus. When Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, evil forces were trying to derail his mission before it even got started. When Peter tried to keep Jesus from the cross, Evil forces were at work. That's why Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. But when the Roman leadership in Judea and the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem conspired to crucify Jesus, it was God who was at work, giving evil just enough leash to accomplish His divine purpose and the very same thing that the angel said of god in the destruction of the great prostitute at the hand of the beast here in revelation 17 could also be said of god when his son died at calvary at the hands of the romans and the jews for god had put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose until the words of god the plans of god were fulfilled And what plans of his were fulfilled at Calvary? Plans to redeem sinners like you and I from what we deserve. Plans to finally and forever rescue those who deserved eternal judgment. Death forever. Plans to put an end to evil once and for all. Plans and make all things new. And if we want to be on the winning side in that that war, then we must be the called, the chosen, the faithful. And friend, if you are that this morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that means that God has written your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And he has, in his perfect timing, he has called you to life. He has called you to faith and you have put your faith in Christ alone. And if that describes you, don't marvel at the world. Marvel at Christ because he wins. Don't be discouraged when you see the world winning or when you see evil advancing because its days are numbered and it goes to destruction. And if this morning you stand on the outside looking in, you've not placed your faith in Christ alone to rescue you from the judgment of your own sin that you deserve, that we all deserve. I beg of you to do so before it is too late. And if you place your faith in a crucified and resurrected Christ this morning to save you from what you deserve, it is because you've been called to faith. You have been called from death to life from God. And he has chosen you to be his before the foundation of the world. So come to Christ in faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this incredible, that though at times on the surface it appears as though it is simply confusing and hard to understand and filled with fantastic pictures and visions at times. It is relaying to us a spiritual truth that is timeless and necessary for our edification. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for preserving it throughout the ages so that we can trust that what we hold in our hands to be your very breath. And Father, I pray and I trust that the proclamation of your breath this morning to your church will bring encouragement to those who may be overwhelmed by what seems like just an overabundance of evil at work in the world. Father, remind them that you win. And remind them that even the evil that they see is on a leash and it won't go any further. And what you decree in order to accomplish your sovereign and good purposes. And Father, for those among us and those within the sound of my voice who have not placed their faith in you, Father, I pray that the bad news would be really clear to them this morning. That if they have not trusted in Christ, they stand outside the family of God and they are hopeless to change that condition unless they come to faith in jesus and if they do by god's grace that means that their names were written in the book of life and you are at this very moment calling them to faith calling them to life lord may your effectual call land squarely on the heart of that young man that older woman that young person in this room and that they would respond in faith and repentance and trust in jesus as their only hope for rescue. Make them as you have made each of us to be again your worshipers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.